Welcome to the Omni Gamers Club podcast, the podcast for games of all platforms. I am Daniel Winter. And this is Mark Uasa. Welcome, Mark. How, how are you? I'm doing pretty well. It's a gloomy, apocalyptic red sky here in the west coast of Canada, and it's surprisingly cold today. Yeah, we're pretty smoked out with some of the wildfires up north and thinking of our friends up there. But in the meantime, again, as, as there are many such excuses in Vancouver, it's another excuse to stay indoors and, and play some games. That's right, the outside will kill you, so play more games inside. So in today's episode, we're going to be talking about a little video game called Venba. But before that, we'll, we can discuss what's new and what other games we've been playing. So Mark, what's news to you? Yeah, it's not really news. It is in a sense, it's news that everyone knows. The upcoming landmark title from a little old company that could called Bethesda is coming out. It's called a Starfield. There's been a lot of hype behind it, maybe not nearly to rival the, the big hype monster of Baldur's Gate 3 right now, but it's it's a big RPG and it's set in space, so that's got me pretty excited. I've been intentionally not watching anything about this. I, I didn't watch any of the sort of big expose background stuff that they released a few weeks back. Uh, I just know that it's coming. I think it's like September 5th. That sounds about right. But I, I believe there's like some early access. If you, if you pay for it, you get like five days early or something. Right. So that's right around the corner when you think about it. It, it, oh, it yeah. sort of just hit me like a couple of weeks ago. Is it really? <laughs> it's been coming for so soon? long now. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. So uh, it's hard, hard to imagine it's actually Right. Here. So I realized, oh, that's only a month away. Uh, so I did the embarrassing thing is I sort of buckled and I bought the collector's upgrade. Because as everyone knows, you and I are Xbox Game Pass subscribers. Game Pass subscribers get access to Starfield for free as part of our fee. But there's this early access package. It's not just it gives you five days of early access. It also gives you some extra content. So I kind of buckled. I think it was less than 40 bucks Canadian for that. Pretty good price, I think, for a pretty epic title that I'm sure to be playing, you know, dozens if not hundreds of hours so that is upcoming and i'm pretty excited to try it once it hits i don't know end of august yeah i i saw that and i don't know that i've seen this before and that to get that sort of upgraded deluxe version if you already have game pass you basically only have to pay for the difference you're not paying the full price of the game uh, and that seemed like a, a nice little feature uh, that I'd been tempted by myself. <laughs> not, not made the, the plunge just yet, but uh, if, if you're considering, that, that's certainly an option. I, I did watch like, a lot of the videos from earlier this year. I'm still struggling. I, I'm not letting myself get excited for this game. It feels so unlikely that it could actually live up to all the expectations <laughs> that it's, that's uh, put down. And I've, I mean, I've, I find myself increasingly not gelling with the direction that Bethesda games have been going. I'm sure it will be a solid game and I'll definitely find some enjoyment out of it, but I don't know that it's going to be the, the, the true uh, open sandbox sci-fi thing that I, that I truly want. So we'll see. Yeah. That's why I'm walking into it with no expectations. <laughs> it's going to be a game in space. Uh, that's as, as much as I know so far. Just kill your standards and, and going blind. Excellent. Well, uh, you, you blew my cover a little bit there. I had I had this uh, big lead up into uh, announcing what my news was in, that, in that discussing the other big uh, release that everyone's discussing right now, which is Baldur's Gate 3. The, you'd have to be living in a cave to not hearing all the new proclamations of, of best game ever and how studios are shaking in their boots to a new standard for games has been set or some such. I, I mean, I've not played this game. I, last episode, I did discuss poking at the first iteration, Baldur's Gate Enhanced Edition, and kind of bouncing off of that. And these last couple of weeks, I've actually been playing another game, Pathfinder Wrath of the Righteous, which is very similar, but obviously using the Pathfinder system. And... I know, playing with that, which I think I, I am enjoying that iteration, the Pathfinder game, but it's led me to some interesting thoughts about how these games are implementing tabletop RPG systems in that they just dump them in whole cloth without 
really much thought about onboarding new players. There's just this seems to be this very assumed knowledge that you know all the ins and outs of the Dungeons and Dragons core rulebook. Uh, and I've, I've heard, I've been anecdotally, I've heard that Baldur's Gate three doesn't really do this much better than than the previous iterations. So yeah, I was curious what what your thoughts on that might be. Yeah, I've played a few of these CRPGs, as you know. Uh, I haven't played all of them. I haven't played the the Pathfinder, uh, more modern CRPGs, even though I own them. But I am somewhat familiar with the Pathfinder system for the tabletop side, and I know that they're they're basically kissing cousins of the of the five E system, especially the new second edition of Pathfinder. Uh, and I, I listened to uh, a podcast recently where where a, a DM was discussing how. You know, five E is not even Wizards' property anymore. If it ever was, <laughs> it's it's strictly it's a framework. It's he c- compared it to like Linux. You know, you can have Ubuntu Linux and you can have Red Hat Linux and you can have a billion different variants of Linux and and people will still create them. So, you know, all Wizards owns is Baldur's Gate and Icewind Dale. The set, it was the setting, not really the system. The settings, the characters, yeah, those named yeah. things, but they they don't own giants and they don't own trolls or elves, right? So so that made mm-hmm. a lot of sense to me. And the games can all blur together as a result. I think the only one that really stands out a great deal to me is the Tides of Numenera game that I've played a decent amount of. It does a, something that's actually pretty similar to some early CRPGs, like like Fallout, like one and two, for instance. They use this like action point system to kind of dole out how many things you can do on your turn. I think hmm. I think the Shadowrun CRPG does the similar thing, and funny enough, Numenera just happens to do exactly that. There's sort of action points that you can pull out of your attribute pools, basically. So in that sense, it's one-to-one how they borrow that mechanic from the Numenera system. But even from playing the game, which I played the video game first, it was very video gamey, you know? Like, I get it. Spend points to, to you know, access a special effect. Like, that. that's, that's, not, that's something that kind of comes intuitively, and you don't have to explain. Yeah. So in that sense, I guess what I'm saying is that they they used it <laughs> to great effect. It was a very smooth transition. Yeah, the, the pacing just sounds more in line with what you'd expect in a video game. Because the thing I'm really struggling with is, I mean, I, I, I have my fair share of sort of cultural osmosis. I know what's b- broadly what strength and charisma do. I, I know what the, the alignment charts are. But I half an hour into this Pathfinder game and between my characters, I have like a couple dozen abilities and I've got 30 scrolls that all have different abilities. I have no idea why I need to care about protection from evil or protection to, for saving throws or whatnot. It doesn't, it hasn't explained any of that. And the problem with the, this, the pacing of these games, whereas like a, a, a round of combat in say in, in Dungeons and Dragons might take an hour. For, for a, a group to sit down, you, you discuss you, each attack is happening in in a, as a dice roll, and you're discussing it, and you're internalizing those rules, what each stat means, how why that plus one is important to you. Where as in these RPG, sorry, these, these video game implementations, it's just dice rolls flashing constantly on the screen without any real chance to just let it soak in what the importance of these various stats and systems are. Things are just constantly moving and it's, it's at the pacing that these games work. It's just really hard to, to, to grok what's happening. So I know I, I maybe I'm just, they're just not for me. Uh, I, I, I'm just a little surprised how little effort these games are putting into trying to bring new players into the fold. Yeah. I think it's sort of a impossible challenge to exactly translate what's uh, effectively like a, a system of organized make-believe uh, from the tabletop <laughs> and turn it into, you know, a, a crunchy machine of calculations and results. Uh, I, I think that in a lot of ways, philosophically, I don't think people that are interpreting tabletop RPGs should make a one-to-one copy of every mechanic. I think that mm. would be pretty pretty darn boring, even 5e or whatever, there's a lot of rules for some things, but there's no rules at all for other things you could do, right? So it's it's all a matter of focusing, choosing what to focus on. 
there's a lot of craft in there that they've included arbitrarily, it feels. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and a lot of that is just setting as well. Like some nerds would probably be very upset if those le- that level of detail wasn't included. Yeah, I'll just say this. I think some earlier versions of D&D PC games, like maybe some of the awkward in-between games, like uh, I think Neverwinter Nights was was a you know pretty old game at this point, but it was one of the yeah. early 3D D&D titles. It had this really obtuse like radial control system where you had to kind of like um if you've ever played tabletopia you had <laughs> you had these little clicks and then you can pull a wheel out and then you can click something else and it pulls a secondary wheel out have you ever done something like that to like pull 30 chips out of a bag or something in tabletopia oh yeah yeah this feels like you're you're operating a a, a sort of crane arm Remotely. Yeah, it, it, exactly. <laughs> it, it feels like you're doing remote surgery, brain surgery on someone yeah, yeah. <laughs> across the ocean. It's pretty much like that. And like that doesn't make anyone happy, I don't think. I, you know, I don't want that level of minutiae of you know, verisimilitude to, to recreate something that's just effectively organized make-believe. So I'm fine, I'm fine with, you know, click the left mouse and, and swing your sword sort of thing. Yeah, no, I'm curious. I, I, I'd like to try Baldur's Gate 3 at some point, but uh, I'll, I'll probably wait for it to be a lot cheaper and see how it gels with me and how much patience I have <laughs> for it. As, as, as it stands right now, as when I last played Pathfinder, I died and, and lost half an hour of gameplay, and I don't know if I have it in me to go back, so we'll see. For what it's worth, I am enjoying that game. As It's got some great characters, some great writing, and that's what mostly you want to play these games for, but the barrier of entry trying to internalize those rules is, is that's a big one. <laughs> yeah. In a lot of ways though, a, a lot of like even digital only games, like a lot of JRPGs have some pretty obtuse game mechanics that they, they either never let go of your hand as in you have like a 30 hour tutorial or else they, they don't go into uh, nearly enough. So it's, it's a hard challenge in either direction. Well, speaking of which, I, I see uh, one such game on your on your playlist. Uh, do you want you want to talk about that? <laughs> yeah, we're we talking about games we're playing now. Okay, sure. Before I talk about the new game, I'll talk about an old game I've been playing. It's called uh, Xenoblade Chronicles One. That's, that's the one I, I spotted. Yeah, <laughs> so you you've played this game before. I know that. I, I'm still working my way through it slowly. Yeah, yeah, you and I are potentially playing the same copy that I borrowed like the, for the third time from the library. I think. <laughs> And this game is great. You know, like I said a while back that I was on this kind of journey to find a fun kind of brainless MMO game to play. And I think this game, Xenoblade Chronicles, is better than any of those dumb MMOs. Like it has that same sort of checking off a a shopping list or a to-do list that fires my endorphins when I, you know, don't, I just want to relax after a hard day at work. Yeah, that's that's fulfilling a similar role for me, sort of pop on a podcast and then grind out some quests to, to kill 10 slimes. You know I mean? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's kind of brainless, but it's kind of compelling at the same time. The character designs are, are, are nice enough. The world is kind of pretty cool and expansive. Like I, I like the really big open spaces. Yeah, it's a, it's a very broad world, open world sort of environments. And the actual setting of it all being on the sort of the surface of this giant, sort of ancient god or mechanical god i I don't know but you're basically on the the back of this giant being that you're this whole world is set uh that's that's pretty neat yeah for sure and you know one thing but one thing i i like i'm only level 20 something i think but i love how there's super high-end high difficulty monsters just waiting around every corner for some reason yeah, which really gives you the sense that you're going to be coming back at some point. Uh, that actually gives you a goal to level up and, and come back to check out later on. So yeah, yeah. for some reason, there's level seventy fives just peppered everywhere, <laughs> and they're, and they're huge too. Like there's literal giant dinosaurs wandering around that like dwarf your character, right. which is fun. I, I'm a little further in. I'm like level forty or fifty, cool. uh, and it's starting to get a little repetitive in that the actual abilities your characters have don't really change up that much. Uh, and so each combat is pretty samey. But for me, again, it's just one of those games to just wind down with and, and, and grind out. Uh, and the story and characters are, are pretty fun. Uh, so yeah, I'm still, I'm still quite enjoying that one. Cool. Same. Yeah. Sometimes you just need a little game like that to keep you going. Mm-hmm. Yeah. How about yourself? What, do you, what have you been playing? Hey, so I, on a, on a similar, similar tangent to 
Venba. I've been playing another cooking game. This is a game that was on Kickstarter, but literally as we're recording, I have just noticed that the project has in fact been cancelled. I I presume it will be coming back at some point, so, so stay tuned. But this is Kitchen Confidence, not to be confused with Kitchen Confidential, as I... I've done several times. Uh, Kitchen Confidence. So this is a a restaurant sim game. So we've seen a lot of games lately like Overcooked and Plate Up that are sort of simulating the frantic stress of, of cooking, but where, where you're actually playing a cook running around and manually grabbing things. This is sort of one step pulled back where you're managing the restaurant. So you have the uh, half a dozen staff moving in this kitchen, fulfilling all these micro activities, like chopping tomatoes automatically. So you're not actually doing those activities. You're just managing the staff more broadly, managing the orders coming in. So I surprisingly quite like this one. It's just the demo that I was playing. It's, it's pretty brief. It got so definitely got some promise. I'll, I'll, I'll give it that. I, I can see there's some rough edges, but it, it, it's still in development. Uh, and yeah, that, that sort of top level down managing everyone. It's a little bit of the Skinner box of, of seeing numbers go up, but it's very satisfying seeing seeing your little chefs going around. It, it feels a little bit like uh, Fallout Shelter, sort of, the, the, sort of watching the ants <laughs> move around your kitchen. You know what I mean? And fulfilling these. Uh, so objectives automatically and you're managing the orders coming in and, and making sure you don't take on too many at a time. So you're really just managing efficiency and, and watching various meters, waiting for the right time for have your staff sort of clean things in between so they don't get out of hand and putting out fires and whatnot. And so yeah, a lot of micromanagement, but it's also just very satisfying watching everyone sort of perform their their, their tasks uh, auto- automatically and then sort of sitting back and, and watching it all run smoothly. And from what I've seen at later points, you, like there's, a lot, there's more elements of actually designing your own kitchen and sort of the so setting it up for the most efficient sort of workflow. Uh, if, if you're into those sort of sim games, I guess, uh, that, that, that can be quite fun. Uh, so yeah, no, I'm quite enjoying this. I'm, I'm curious to see how it develops. So I'm sure it'll probably be back on Kickstarter at some point. Keep an eye out for that. That is Kitchen Confidence. Nice, yeah. Those cooking games, you know, we'll we'll talk about it later. But they, there are a few different angles at it, right? Like whether you want to do like the one to one kind of like the that Cooking Mama and Venba does, or do you want to do like micromanaging a team or this kitchen confidence sounds like it's more like you're kind of coaching the team and the team has to execute on its own. So that's interesting. Yes. Yeah. Very cool. Yeah. No, I, you know, I recently played Cooking Simulator as well, which is very much, that was like a first person, you are in the kitchen chopping the tomatoes yourself. And that was just trying to that was very much like it's based on the surgeon simulator i guess so it's really trying to capture the awkwardness of actually doing each activity one at a time and each cut and everything and let's really get into the nitty-gritty so this is very much at the other end of the spectrum and, and pulling back and just the general environment of the kitchen as a whole rather than on the ground level right yeah and i think those simulator titles you mentioned are very popular in vr as well which adds extra kind of goofiness yes. to the experience <laughs> yeah Absolutely. for sure all right, I'll talk about the next game I played, which is uh, new. It's not even out yet. It's called Palea or Palia, I guess. Palea. I think it's called mm, Palea. P-A-L-I-A. It's an open beta right now. I've been playing it for, I don't know, a week or two, uh, playing it on the Steam Deck. It's for PC, but it, it runs pretty well even on Steam Deck there. There's, someone made a, a pretty smart uh, control mechanism, but they are going to release it for consoles such as Switch soon enough. So people can look forward to it there. Uh, the promise of this is basically like it's a cozy game kind of MMO. So if you can kind of picture like a cross between Animal Crossing and that uh, Disney Dream Light Valley, Dream Sim Valley that we covered. Yeah, it sounds about right. <laughs> it's kind of like that. It's actually a lot like Dream Light Valley, except bigger. So hmm. the the worlds that you can explore are not not that big by MMO standards, but they're at very least they're like uh, you know like fifty times bigger than what you saw in Dreamlight Valley. 
So you can imagine, you know, that that feels a little bit less constrained, a little bit less like a mobile game and more like an MMO. It's pretty like light and, you know, obviously still in development, but I'm enjoying it so far. It's kind of nice to just kind of kick back and work on your on your homestead. And the mechanisms are intentionally slowed down, it seems like. So you, you just don't get a ton of missions handed to you or anything like that. You can kind of take it at your own pace. There's no timers or limitations. There's no monsters attacking you. It's basically like the low stress, cozy game <laughs> um, example of uh, MMO. And that was really interesting because the next physical game we're talking about sort of kind of has a little crossover to that. So Palea, yeah, keep an eye op- open for it. It's It's pretty cool so far. Yeah, I've been he- hearing some early hype for that. Is, is there much in way of player interaction from what you've seen? I have not interacted with any other players whatsoever. <laughs> so in that sense, no. But uh, I think you're you know you're supposed to like play it with with your friends. So like you're supposed to you know build mm. a a farm together, or you're supposed to do it with a partner, or you know like I think it's sort of like that shared. It's like an instance, and then it's not—it's not an actual MMO. It is instanced. I think there's something like you know, like thirty people in the same instance. But oh, okay. So there are other but if you there. if you pal up, then you you will be in the same world. Awesome. Okay. Yeah, and it could be good. You know, like they could really help out with doing some mundane tasks. Like you know, you just like till your farm together, you water your plants together, you go do some fishing together, you go chop some wood together. Like one of those uh, third spaces where you're just hanging out. It's ways to hang out while you're chatting, basically, like your Fortnite or whatever. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> or maybe you're just together alone, right? Like you, you're just doing your different activities, mm. but you're nearby each other and just spending time that way. Yeah, there's definitely a place for those games. And especially one that's not quite as stressful as Fortnite. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Yeah, it's a it's an interesting direction for this genre. Interesting. I'll, I'll take a look sometime. Cool. Okay, shall we talk about some analog titles? Yeah, well, I was just talking about Kitchen Confidence as a simulator game on Kickstarter, or at least it was on Kickstarter. Uh, So speaking of which, another one that's on Kickstarter right now is Small City Deluxe. So, I mean, at least there is a couple of expansions for it on Kickstarter. So I actually received this a couple of months ago, the, the base game in one of the first expansions. So this is a, a, a deluxified remaster of an older game came out in around 2015 i think small city by alban viard who designed another the only other game of his i've played is called clinic also a simulation game that was basically say sim hospital or two-point hospital uh and i i'm pretty sure i would have discussed that previously on the pod here i i'm a big fan of that and this is basically his take on sim city so each player has their their own city board, a grid of, of, of square tiles. You, you're grabbing sort of tetronomos of various types to to lay down, and basically managing the flow of citizens into your city and then into the various factories and and commercial districts and managing pollution. So quite a lot of moving pieces going on here, but it's, is again, the sort of thing that kind of runs itself. So once it's a little sense of sort of programming happening where you put citizens in a certain position and then the rest of the round will just run based on where those citizens are, uh, which is always very satisfying. You just pull a lever and then watch everything play out. It was a bit of a struggle to learn, I will say. The rules are a little rough. I, I, I believe some of it is probably a translation issue. There, there definitely are some occlusions, though, that were in the original version and is not really fixed, even for the deluxe edition. Uh, there are some, some misprintings on some boards that that help that further complicated things. There's no, not much in terms of reference sheets, so you have to go digging onto third-party files. So it did take quite a bit to learn. I've played it both solo and at three player, and only after 
those games that I really feel I'd internalized everything. But now, now that I know the game, it's actually pretty snappy. I can sit down and play a solo game in 30, 40 minutes, which is, which is great because as, as with clinic, the expansion comes with a whole bunch of modules. So now I can just sit down, add, add in, uh, uh, throw in one extra module each game to, to see what it does and be done in, within the hour, basically. So that, that, that's, that's been good fun. It's yeah. It, it it definitely is a very heavy game, big barrier to entry. But once once you once you learn the game, <laughs> it's it, it, it's 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 good fun. Just setting up your city. I've been talking a bit lately about games where just the the tactile element of laying out a city or a, a town or a sort of caverna. Similarly, just there's a lot of joy to be had in just setting up your your personal player board in sort of aesthetically pleasing way. And this is definitely one of those where you have a lot of agency about where you put things, just what looks good basically. And yeah, I think that's a big understated part of games that just give you that sense of agency over your own little player space. Nice. I like a good sim game. So yeah, I'd like to see that first person for sure. I, I should say of, of those expansion modules, the first one I went to, of course, is the Godzilla module. Because if you've ever played SimCity, I mean, I, I played it back back when I was like ten, because it was one of the only games that was on uh, Macintosh computers. I was terrible at the game at the time, but the best thing, of course, was just setting up a city to unleash Godzilla or the the alien invasion or whatever it was, the floods, I think, and just watch chaos ensue. And so now you can do that on on the board game table. Mm-hmm. Very cool. <laughs> Nice. Well, I'm going to talk about an analog game that you and I both had experience with because we were both at the same event. We went to our friendly local game store, Rain City Games, here in Vancouver on August the 19th for their official Disney Lurkana slash Ravensburger extravaganza. We, we signed up for the event. We both got a starter deck and two boosters. Uh, the, the starter deck, I think, comes with one booster included in the package. And we proceeded to play a bunch of rounds. And you proceeded to win a bunch of rounds. <laughs> I did. I This never happens to me, especially in two-player games. But I think I, I wiped the board with you four for four to O, oh, as yep. I recall. So I'll, I'll, live, I'll live in glory in this one moment for now. <laughs> but anyways, I don't think I'm going to say much more about Lorcana because we might talk about it in a future instance. But I'll just say good turnout i think there was like a full house in the back room and we played a bunch of rounds beautiful artwork this game looks pretty interesting this is all the only game anyone is talking about in the in the the board game scene right now it's 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 been a little wild seeing the (laughs) the, all the lineups and the scalping and a lot of availability issues going down, which is a little unfortunate. It's hard to know where the, the fault lies exactly there. It's it's certainly not easy rolling out a new TCG. I mean, seeing the level of interest for it is certainly great. I mean, a, lo- a lot of TCGs have, have burnt on arrival. Crashed on arrival. What's what's the what's the phrase? Dead on. I um, believe it's called dead on arrival. <laughs> the, the, well, that's just it. But I don't think I don't think Disney likes to refer to, to actual dead, do they? Yeah, so it's been great to see this sort of community uh, build up, and especially in in the these, this event we went to. I've got some mixed feelings on the game that perhaps I'll reserve for now. Uh, we've only played with the starter decks, and I, I have heard there is a lot more depth to be found sort of building your own deck beyond that. I'm looking forward to how that evolves, but we'll perhaps discuss that in some further detail down the road. Yeah, for sure. And speaking of that one night... Uh, you and I were hanging out at the store after the uh, we wrapped up with the event, and they happened to carry a new product for a game that I think we both enjoy that's several years old that just happens to be called Keyforge, another collectible game, although you don't c- collect or trade the cards. It's the all-in-one unique deck game. And uh, it's under new hands now, so I was very interested to see where the the game has evolved. I haven't kept up to date, and we got fresh new decks from the unopened pack of the latest set, I believe. And we what I think we played two two matches of Keyforge uh, last night. Yeah, so this is the new Winds of Exchange set. I believe the new publisher is Ghost Galaxy. It, it's a bit of a story history with how that game played out because the algorithm they were using to generate these unique decks was somehow 
broken, I believe, with all kind of rumors floating around that, obviously. But they had to apparently rebuild this algorithm from the ground up under new ownership. So it's ostensibly a new product, but it's definitely pulling it's building upon the original game it's like it's using all of the same sort of factions all the same keywords and it's not really resetting the game mechanically in any way so there is a little bit of bloat in how many keywords i think we're trying to figure out and all the abilities on the cards we like because there's no rules and when you just pick up a deck so you have to like find this online and, and look through it so a little bit of catching up we had to do in trying to get up to speed but yeah, once you once you're in the game, I I still thoroughly enjoy this game. I think it's pretty underrated. I will say. Yeah, Keyforge kicks butt. I'm glad I have a bunch of decks, and I'm glad that you also enjoy it. Let's play a bunch more in the future. Absolutely. I, I was going to say one of the new systems they have in this is a, a, a token mechanic. So in, in Magic: The Gathering, tokens are these sort of card, they're not cards in your deck. They're they're this sort of subsidiary cards that will, will come out into play some cards in your deck will pull out these other sort of secondary cards that tend to be pretty weak but have some nice synergy going on and so yeah it was really fascinating to see how keyforge can play with a token system uh in some clever new ways and yeah lots of new mechanics that uh that are, it, our decks felt very powerful but pretty evenly matched at the same time so that was good fun and and again very accessible in the sense of just pick up a deck and play it and you never know what you're going to get i love the sense of discoverability and just improvising with with the hand i've been given (laughs) there you go the whole deck you've been given oh all right (laughs) i think we've talked at length about games we've played what about um the the main course yes well let's let's take a uh snack break and and come back with talk of venva nice Okay, well, I'm glad we're not on an empty stomach because this game will make you hungry. Uh, tonight we're talking about Venba. I came out uh, just a few weeks ago in 2023. It's developed here in Canada, uh, in Toronto, by a studio called Visai Studios. Yeah, and it's it's basically out on all platforms. Your your Xbox, your PlayStation. Nintendo Switch and Steam, and uh, as we want to say, it's on Game Pass. Yeah, that's right. So you have no reason to not try this meal of a game. I I will say, uh, in full disclosure, I did receive a review copy of this game, a a, a digital copy, but I'm pretty sure I just ended up playing it on Game Pass anyway, so I don't know that it really counts. (laughs) Nice. Yeah, let's, let's start talking about this unique game. We've been kind of teasing about the food angle to it, but this is kind of ostensibly a cooking game. Yeah, you've talked about some other games like Cooking Mama and and, and that, which I've not really played before. But this is quite a, di- a different take to to your Overcooked and some of the other recent pu- uh, cooking games. In that, it's more of a, a pu- cooking is a puzzle, I guess. Yeah, cooking is a mechanic, but it's not the whole game, as we'll soon discover. Yeah, my history with cooking games is is not terribly extensive, but I have played at least two or three of the Cooking Mama games from, I think, way back on DS. And then there's a new one on iOS that I haven't tried out. But, uh, you know, there's they're a pretty standard framework. There's like one dish and you got like three to five ingredients and then you have like three to whatever, three steps. And you, you it was kind of like the point of the touch and the waggle, right? The generation yeah, like Nintendo. mini games and gimmicks and things like that more than the right. puzzle, I guess. Yeah, and <laughs> like the there was a sort of the verisimilitude enabled by having touch and by having the waggle, right? Like that was the gimmick back in those days because you didn't have that before when it was just the push of a button. <laughs> but uh, this one's really similar in the mode of that kind of first person cooking. I thought it was actually pretty close. Uh, but like I said, it's not just about cooking. This is also a highly narrative game. Yeah, so it's set in, I think it starts in 1988 with a young family who've just moved from India to Canada. A young couple, I should say. And then at the offset of the game, they, they have a child and that uh, is 
obviously introducing a lot of anxiety on top of the other difficulties of being in a new culture and trying to get jobs and that sort of thing. And it's it's, it's exploring a lot of family dynamics uh, and the sense of obviously immigration and, and, and family and, and trying to retain the sense of culture, but largely through the lens of cooking. It, they describe it as a, a narrative cooking game. So this game does have a lot of themes. Uh, before we kind of delve too deeply into that, maybe we can s- start talking about some like structural things. Like this game is very much kind of like chapter based. So each chapter kind of has a balance of the plot development that tells the story of this this growing family, their you know acclimation to life in a new country you know, kind of cultural exchanges, but there's always one dish. No, there's almost always one dish that relates to kind of the task at hand. So it's like, this is X character's favorite dish because they had a worth celebrating happening in their life. Or this reminds me of my relation in the, in the old country or something to that effect. So it's very natural. And I think they very like seamlessly integrate the cooking into the story. Like, it doesn't really seem contrived. Yeah, there's, there's always a, a direct reason to be using the, the, the cooking uh, sort of framework. And they, they use it quite cleverly as, like, cooking as a, as a variety of, of f- f- frames. I, I could say, like, cooking as a sort of both, – both, both as a direct sustenance, like, the character is sick. They, they need – sort of chicken noodle soup or not noodle soup, chicken soup, I guess it was. Uh, I can't remember the, the actual name of the dish or f- food as a tradition, food as a, a sort of bringing the family together. There's so many different ways in which food functions within the, the themes of the story here that I thought was, was, was really clever. It was all quite seamless. Yeah. And I don't know if you can, it's, it's, it's worth calling a spoiler because I think it's very non-specific, but I think if anything, the kind of the theme of this game boils down to, you know, food is a love language, right? Yes. And, and yes, absolutely. you can express yeah. love through a dish, through cooking, uh, you know, so th- through the labor, through the care, and you can also kind of express more than that. You can express culture, you can express stories, and that gets bigger when you're talking about multiple generations. Anyways, and yeah. Food, food is a memory was another big one I, I found. Like the, the sense of smell, a very specific smell can bring back vivid memories of other things that were happening in your life at that time. Right. Uh, and that's something I, I, I've definitely experienced. Uh, and it is brought up quite explicitly here, again, without going into specifics. But, yeah, that that's really gets into a lot of the, the, the deep impressions that food can have on you. It is not just <laughs> something tasty. There, there's some really deep, impression deep impacts that food can have on you as a person as a culture as a family member i guess maybe another theme is that food is it's kind of like an ambassador too right because i was familiar with some of the names of these dishes that they were covering you know there's like maybe what like six or seven dishes overall i think there's six scenes but some have like multiple dishes in them they say idlis. I think that was one of the earlier dishes. Dosas come up later. Biryanis. These are dishes that you know I've certainly had before. You know we're very fortunate to live in a, a very you know diverse multicultural city. <laughs> in fact, between finishing this game and recording this episode, I was compelled, of course, to order a bunch of Indian food <laughs> and have a feast of it with my family this past week. So I had some tasty. Indian dishes, but unless you come from that background, uh, I think it's specifically South Asian cooking. Uh, Tamil, I, I believe. Yeah, yeah. The, the culturally, they, they speak Tamil, the language, and these dishes expressly come from South India. A lot of the ingredients will not be familiar to you unless you come from that culture. Yeah. Either you know as a immigrant or as a part of the diaspora. Of course, you might be familiar with that. So if you are, you're, you're going to have a different relationship with it, right? But I, as I think you and I are probably, you know, outsiders to this culture, it was really interesting to learn about some of these ingredients. And like, there was kind of a, a really unique cooking implement or multiple cooking impl- implements for these specific dishes, pretty much in every scene. 
Yeah, that was one of the more fascinating elements. I was actually curious about some of these unique kitchen utensils. I, I don't even think they're necessarily named here, but like the special little steamed baskets that the Idlis are made in, for example, or this sort of rocket canister that they they make the the putu, I think it's called, in this like t- tall cylinder that the, the the rice is sort of stacked in. Uh, so I, I'd be I'd be quite curious to to make some of these dishes myself if. But I don't know where you go out finding these specific utensils or how easy it is to to adapt uh, to without those. <laughs> yeah, I have um, fond recollections of, well, I don't know if I, they're universally fond, but I have strong memories of, you know, just kind of pulling out weird to me, unfamiliar cooking implements in the kitchen. You know, I come from a East Asian family, so, you know, we have our own different types of dishes that require certain types of, you know, cookware. And I I can only imagine through hearing the complaints of my parents, you know, how expensive it must have been to ship some of these items over. You know, (laughs) I think they make similar claims in the, in the game itself. Like, mama, you wouldn't believe how expensive it was to buy all these spices or something like that Mm -hmm. from also, but also how cheap rice is over here, for example. Right. Or how, 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 exp- was it, how expensive it was. There being a bit of a culture shock in that regard. Right. To yeah, just those kind of differences, right? Like those kind of reinforce the fact that you're not you're not in Kansas anymore, right? You're you're not you're not in the old country anymore. So yeah, I, I thought that in that sense, food is an, an ambassador because it teaches us outsiders to that culture something a bit more about that culture. It, it kind of transports us away. It teaches us things we didn't know. And I guess it, it kind of tra- can transport you back if you are from a, a different culture. It can transport you to that that home country, whatever it might be for different people, remind you that you know, you're sort of connected to them. And, and these cooking implements and dishes are, are a tool, a bridge to that. Yeah, we, we are, we're obviously very lucky here in Vancouver, being a very multicultural city. We have a lot of these cuisines and, and ingredients readily available, a lot of international food markets, and for example. And in Australia, where, I, where I'm from, there was probably even a bigger Indian community over there. Uh, so I, I, the food, these food, like restaurants of these cuisines is, is, is quite often the first sort of experience other people will have of, of these cultures that is very much a sort of a gateway to, to learning more about them for a lot so, for so many people I mean and, and speaking of like coming from Australia like I, I am myself a Canadian immigrant I, I'm now trying to raise a young family in a in a country without any sort of family here to support us and i'm not going to pretend that it was anyway anywhere near as difficult <laughs> like it's it's fairly similar all things considered moving from australia to canada like not, not nowhere near of a, of a culture shock i didn't face any of the the persecution or, or, or other such issues but i can certainly relate to that universal sense of trying to, to build a home in a new space and that sort of alienation and trying to identify what parts of your culture you want to keep. I mean, <laughs> okay, not to say that Australia has a rich cuisine, but I, I do find myself missing uh, some meat pies and lamingtons on occasion, but <laughs> I don't really have that, that strong connection right. to, to that culture to pull me yeah, back. Yeah, you, you might connect more with the parents in this story, whereas I am the child in this story, right? Like I am yes, the son. Yeah. I am the son of two immigrants. Uh, I came up in pretty much that same time frame in Canada and not in Toronto, but in Vancouver, of course. And so I, I have a different perspective on this immigrant story as well. And I guess like in, in, in one way, you know, not to say you don't own a portion of the story, but like you didn't have the, the language challenge as well, which, which exactly. is very, Absolutely. very prominent in this story, at least it was kind of, charming how there was that scene where well actually multiple scenes where Kavan the son is being the translator so obviously all the text if you if you choose it to be is in English whether they're speaking Tamil or English right it wasn't always clear when they were talking one language or another. That was one thing because it, it, it is a, a, a sort of a plot point or a thematic point at least. And it was they didn't always 
there wasn't really a representation of when they were talking one because it's always it's always just English on the screen that you're reading. Yeah, you you get the clues through context, right? So the, they'll Largely, be writing yeah. in English, and then the mother, whose name happens to be Venba, so so Venba is is the name of the mother. She will say something like, and then and then what did they say, right? Um, you know, to, asking Kavan to translate it, and you know, once again, you know that that was me. Like I had to translate certain things. I had to read certain notices that came home from school. You know, I had to be the translator for the parents, even though you know my mm. parents are quite capable with the language now. But you know that 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 spoke to me like very directly. So yeah, that was that yeah. was kind of touching. And I, I feel like we've actually had quite a few of these stories in recent years of you know children of immigrants. So like the, the whole, I've heard so many, so many times the whole, like I, I, I wouldn't eat my, my food at school because, you know, you'd be picked on for, or it smelt funny or things like that. And that wasn't really something that was touched on here. We didn't, we never really got the impression that Carvin was being bullied, just that he wanted to fit in, but there's absolutely the subtext of that. I'm sure. I don't think it was subtext. I think there's a scene where they clearly cover that effect. It's, well, the father, I know, I was facing some personal. No, no, not even that. It's the scene that happens about three quarters in, where the son is talking to the only character that's not part of his family. Do you remember that one? They, yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah, but, I mean, it's absolutely an assumption, regardless. But what you don't often see is the, this story from the perspective of the parents. Actually, this game is interesting in the way that it has multiple um, protagonists because it does. Some chapters are told from the perspective of the mother, and some are told from the perspective of the son. I, I like how they kind of tossed that back and forth, and it was very effective, I think, because they use that central language, right? They use that central language of cooking to communicate with each other. And they both sides learn that it's a love language, and they kind of learn to speak with each other. And that, that's yeah, sort of that's, the, that's kind of like a third language between them. Yeah, <laughs> the theme of the story is right. Is like these the hardest part of immigration is sometimes the generations talking to each other. Yeah, yeah, and and just not knowing how to communicate or express yourself, but that forming a sort of universal language to an extent. Yeah, we're we're kind of jumping around it a bit, but um, this this I don't want to give too much away because it is so much based on story. But thematically, though, this story and the story is very strong. It remind, reminded me a lot of this Disney short. I don't know if you know it. It's called Bow. Oh yes, yeah. I, I don't, it's been a while since I've seen that, but I, I, I did some time ago. Yeah, you can easily access it now on uh, Disney+. Plus. It's by the director. Uh, I don't know her name, but she would eventually later create the feature Turning Red. Oh, of course, yes. Right. So they're, yeah. both of those works are really immigrant immigration stories, and they're both about immigrant families who immigrate to Canada. And so not just for that reason, but that reminded me very much of a Venba. And also the story in Bao is, is told from the perspective of the mother. And mm, it's about right. the mother's relationship with the son. And Turning Red is, about, is from the perspective of the daughter. So that's a little bit different. But definitely if you have watched Bao, you'll see a lot of similarities. And it's just as kind of touching and heartwarming and pulls on the heartstrings uh, as I predicted it would be last episode. Um, <laughs> it's very effective, I think. Yeah. I mean, we, we definitely, you, you talked about sort of the generational differences there. And that's a huge theme right now, especially like look at um, everything everywhere all at once. Right. That generational trauma as the villain right. <laughs> and it's, it's not so much trauma here but more that misunderstanding i i believe um yeah that a lot, a lot of people are going to relate yeah, to yeah it's a very popular well i don't know if it's a popular but it's just finally being spoken of now right yes because yeah. we're finally speaking of telling these more diverse stories perhaps the creators of these stories are finally getting the chance to showcase stories from their own perspective. But you're right, you know, Disney in particular has covered a lot of these kind of generational trauma stories. Turning Red just happens to be one of them. Bao is another example. Another one that comes to mind from Disney itself is uh, Encanto. 
I don't know if you've seen that yes. one either, yeah. but that one is is not an immigrant story, but it's about generations and, and the kind of the stories we don't tell each other. Yeah, and there's even there's a small dig I feel towards these shows using diversity as a bit of a, a sort of just a, a paint representation without really diving into those the, the true culture. Like the, 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 not, again, not without spoiling anything, but as a character talking about a TV show in which it's just different colored people eating different types of food right. being like that. That's how diversity is represented but without really getting into the true experience of being these people. Yeah. Yeah. You're, you're right. I think what you're referring to is, is, is that uh, like the Vamba itself uh, has that scene where, where I don't know, I guess the son starts in going into the workplace and he's kind of having doubts about what his work is telling him that he should say when he has conflicted feelings about how his relationship with his cultural upbringing. So, so yeah, it it definitely kind of pokes the hole at this whole like rainbow coalition or what's the, the um, token representation, I guess. The the melting pot. Yeah. And this, yeah, you're right. It's the tokenization of multiculturalism. Yeah. I feel like that's been used badly in the past. Like, not mm. the least of which in in Canada, you know, American audiences have a different uh, perspective. They they believe in that whole melting pot thing, where you know you're supposed to become homogenous. Yeah, I think that's <laughs> starting to change. I think that's starting to. I think people are starting to understand this term called you know intersectionality. Like you can be more than one thing, right? That's allowed. And we are getting so many of these. I mean, Venba being one of them. So many of these stories now of truly unique experiences told from a, a unique culture that with, without having to adapt the story to yeah. homogenous audiences. I think it's just, you know, <laughs> kind of what you and I, I guess touched upon just a moment ago is that like, this is people, this is creators of diverse backgrounds, finally getting the opportunity to tell their own stories rather than mm. being told how to tell their own story. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So, so for that, I think this is really an effective, let's, let's admit it, a really short, really concentrated punch of storytelling that's really, really personal. And I can only imagine autobiographical. Yeah, I didn't dig into that too much. I, I imagine it would have to be to some extent, potentially by, from the, 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 the Carvin character, I assume. But yeah, it, it is very brief. It's what... I finished it in under two hours. Yeah, I, I think uh, how long how long to beat has it at 1.5? Basically 5. the length of a movie. Uh, and I, I could have done with more. Mm-hmm. Uh, especially in some of the earlier segments i believe like when carbon's a kid perhaps more or more like the earlier stage of of, of, of vendor being in canada but as it stands there's there's no filler here really this is this is every every bite here is 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 filling like every every, every segment is saying something quite explicit and they've they've straight to the point i will say and as it stands it, 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 it could have played with more but, but it's quite very impactful punch as it stands right now i feel the length of the game was was just about right you know i was pleased when it came to the end but yeah you're right there are some pretty big time jumps i i felt that the length was was just about right and and i i know this game is free on game pass it's 15 us dollars retail that is the price of a movie you know Absolutely, if you don't yeah. mind watching a really personal, you know, emo- emotional, autobiographical story uh, uh, about an immigrant family to Canada, then you know, like this is a well worth the price of entry. And speaking of movies, something about the framing of this game really struck me as quite cinematic, not in this sort of grand epic action sense, but this the the, the closeness. Of the, the way it framed characters and and particular scenes felt very very like like watching a sort of indie movie or something. Uh, I, I can't quite put it into, into words beyond that, but I, I really like that. It, it felt very personal and yeah, just this lovely 
frames the whole story. Yeah, obviously this this you know production company, this developers, they they they're using the, the tools of the craft really effectively. Uh, I think the character designs are really lovely. Like they're 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 just so you know they have a lot of personality, despite the fact that the drawings are just like you know a few circles and some lines over here, <laughs> like very <laughs> simplistic, but they convey so much. I think similarly, the music's really on point. It's it's like upbeat a lot of the times, and then you know it knows how to bring the tone down when it needs to. Uh, I don't know if it's you know culturally appropriate, but I imagine that it is. And the color color design was was just fantastic. I think it's colorful, but it's also muted in a way. Yeah, and part of that feels like the like through the years that color palette changes a bit too is a, a good representation of how times change. Right. It's, it, it kind of, yeah, it's, it's that hint of sepia. It's that hint of faded photographs that you, you get from old analog media of that, that day. So it made, it felt really fresh. The art design felt really fresh, but also nostalgic at the same time. So yeah, they did a fantastic job with the production design. Absolutely. Uh, one thing like, we haven't really discussed much of the actual gameplay necessarily. Um, there's a lot to be said about the story here, obviously, but there there is some gameplay to be had. Yeah. And like, what the one thing that's really hit me is that the cooking here. I mean, it, it is a puzzle, and that you're given a sort of top down view of some ingredients and some utensils, and usually a recipe book, but there's always like part of it is crossed out or damaged in some way. And so you have to sort of infer what those steps are. And it really captures this sense of trial and error that you have. Like I, I cook a lot myself and sometimes you, like you, you, the ingredients you have or the, or the, uh, utensils you have don't quite match up to the recipe and you just have to wing it a bit and see what works and learn by what doesn't work and like there isn't the sense of failure or not failure but when when you get something incorrect like there's sort of this narration from Venba talking to herself and she sort of says why that doesn't work and really talking through that, that that process of trial and error, I thought was was quite clever. Right. Yeah. I think the cooking sections are are probably not equally well executed every time. No, and they're no. they're not equally designed every time. Like some of them are are literally sort of deduction puzzles, which I enjoyed. You know, I like I like cracking through a puzzle sometimes, and then others are sort of more like sensorial experiences, like like part of a montage almost. Yeah. Like, and so you're encouraged to just get through it as quickly as possible as part of this longer montage. Yeah. One of the cases was like rotating the analog stick. Like I used a controller. I don't know yes. what you did, Yeah, but that actually kind of, uh, rubbed me the wrong way in one case because and that's back to cooking mama, basically. Yeah. Well, <laughs> it, it, I don't mind that there's rotation. It, it totally reminds me of those games, but in one dish, it asks you to rotate the stick, and I think it turned it. I turned it clockwise or something like that. And then there's a dish later on where you. It also tells you to rotate, but now for no reason at all, you have to rotate in the opposite <laughs> direction. Yeah, that, that was a little fiddly on on, on mouse. I will say I, that that caught me as well. Yeah, <laughs> there was there was absolutely no reason to do that before you took the action. Once you did take the action, you figured it out after multiple failed attempts that you have to rotate in the opposite direction. Obviously, it was just to match the direction of the animation, but it didn't happen yeah, that way. There's not a, a huge sense of progression or consistency between these each of them largely stands alone and is doing something very different based on the story so as, as a game mechanic it's quite inconsistent but only because they're all in service to this to, to broader themes you know yeah and perhaps the the mission designs were designed by a team of people and they, they didn't always use the same techniques and neither would you want to use the same techniques in all case you know there's there's obviously a build-up and as you alluded to later in the game there's a kind of a sequence where you make multiple dishes in a row and i thought that was a you know really kind of satisfying climax mechanically speaking yeah thematically they work 
both in, in, in a universal sense of cooking, but also towards the, the, the story uh, themes here as well. And so I, I think they work much better in terms of that than uh, like alone, removed from all context, it wouldn't be the, the most satisfying, but they all work as part of the, the grand scheme here. Yeah, absolutely. I, I agree with that. I, the way I took it as the game doesn't rely on the cooking, right? The cooking helps tell the story. So to that end, I think it 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 did it very well. The story was strong yeah, enough. Yeah, there's nice little punctuation moments, basically, to highlight a particular moment or story beat. <laughs> yeah, really, story is king here. There's some really powerful moments. I'm not going to give any of them And some them gut away. punches. <laughs> Absolutely. There's the some that I worried would come, you know, the racism, uh-huh. you know, creeps its ugly head. But then there's more, more subtle points where the, the, the child in this situation, the son, really has to struggle with his own identity. And, you know, I can relate to that, you know, being a person of color, being a child of an immigrant, have the language and cultural differences. You know, I, of course, I, I feel very different about my, my children's upbringing because there's the world you know, has, has grown, has become a little bit more open to differences and different ideas. But, you know, this character feels conflicted and I felt conflicted right along with them. There's, there's a sequence with a cell phone, which I, I won't spoil, but it, it was very effective, I thought. Well, did, did you scroll up on, this, on the cell phone? No, I didn't. I didn't scroll. Because you, you, you give it a cell phone and you can scroll like with some messages and you can scroll down. But you can actually scroll up quite a way and there's like a lot more history of text there. Oh, that's cool. That was, yeah, I had some, some more background. It's like turning left. That, <laughs> it's like turning left at yeah. the beginning of, of Metroid. So, yeah, no spoilers, but make sure you do that if, you, if you're playing. <laughs> Very nice. Yeah, I think that touches, that leads us to when the question some people might have is, you know, how replayable is this game? I don't know that answer myself. Like, there are literal text uh, branching dialogue trees. Yeah, I don't know. Those probably wouldn't change much. It's just little flourishes of, of uh, you know, you're not really making a choice to guide the story. It's just how does the character feel that you're in as you're visualizing them? Yeah. I I imagine that it doesn't branch mechanically into anything else. You're not going to see some, you know, Bioware style branching stories. (laughs) A brand new recipe that that was hidden. Exactly. (laughs) Unlock um, extreme cooking mode. No, I don't think, think you're going to see anything like that, but you might see different dialogue, which is, you know, really core to the storytelling, right? So there might be a reason to play it again. I don't think it might be worth it because you wouldn't feel the same about those, you know, sort of gut punching emotional moments. This, the very same the next time. Same time, like give it a couple of years and and revisiting it as you would a, a movie. Like I, I think it totally would be worth. It's, it's short enough that it's, it's easy enough to just re-experience if you're looking to to revisit it. But uh, again, that's not necessarily a big factor. I, I don't know. I don't know that it's it's not it's not really a a, a, a demerit against it that it's not necessarily replayable it's yeah. stands wonderfully as an experience as it is yeah i agree i was perfectly satisfied with my one playthrough it it, it did what it needed to do it told a great story and i, I thoroughly enjoyed myself it's, it's a unique story from a unique perspective and yeah it's, we need more indie games telling telling these stories right for sure okay should we wrap up our dish there absolutely do you want to tell us about the next game we'll be discussing? So we're going back to the board game table next episode. Uh, looking at a, a game I may, I may have discussed before, I don't, I don't recall, but certainly one that's it's been on my mind quite a bit, and that is I Love Cats. And I, I guess I should specify for those hearing it out loud for the first time, this is I-S-L-E, Isle of Cats. That's right. And I, I, I did not notice that pun until I, an embarrassingly long time, until you say it out loud. <laughs> yeah, I, I do recall you mentioning this game before. I've never played it. Uh, I know what it looks like. It's got a boat or something, and it's got some tetromino-shaped cats pieces, I believe. That's as much as I know. Yeah, fitting cats onto a boat, rescue all the cats, basically. Uh, so th- that's 
that'll be our next game. So yeah, looking forward to discussing that with yeah. you. That sounds great. I'll have to, you'll have to teach me that one and it's on uh, board game arena as well. So maybe those listening can play along with us. Yeah. And I, I first thing I forgot to mention at the uh, up front is that this last episode is actually the two year anniversary of the podcast. Right. Yeah, clap, 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 clap. So yeah, thanks to everyone who's who's joined us and all of the the, the guests we've had along the way. Uh, I, I don't know that we want to go into too much detail on the state of the pod here, but I mean, we'd like we'd like to have more guests. It's been tough to schedule, I will say, uh, with time differences and, and and young families for both of us. But we're certainly looking at other ways that we might be able to, to mix up the pod going forward not not don't expect any massive changes but uh we'd we'd love to 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 get any feedback or or or, or thoughts or just people joining us for the game like we've already always envisioned this as a a community the reason that we discuss a particular game each episode is so that you can play along and, and compare your thoughts right yeah i actually have a tiny bit of feedback Oh, yeah. A friend of a show, (laughs) I think you put out a post that said something like, yes, this is the two year anniversary of our podcast. Friend of the show and my personal friend, uh, Marcel Perot, uh, said that he enjoyed the long dark episode, which I think was our first. Oh, no, it was pretty early, like in the first 10 hours. An early episode. And he said that listening to that episode prompted him to get into the game. So that's exactly the kind of thing we want to hear. <laughs> and he's still there now. <laughs> Freezing in the waste. <laughs> yes. No, I hope not. Uh, Marcel's a good guy. So, yeah, we want to hear more feedback. And I don't think we have anything planned, so this is not a spoiler. But I think that you and I should do something fun for episode 50. Yeah, let's, we've got a little bit of time to plan that. So let's uh, throw some ideas around. And I mean, the, the thing I've considered is whether it's we want to start up a, like a, a Discord, even perhaps the, to ha- give people an opportunity for a more sort of casual discussion of the the game game of the episode. So if if that interests you, or you have any thoughts or feedback, or you know, reviews and ranking ra- ratings on your your Apple, your Spotify, whatever it is your your podcatcher of, of, of choice, uh, is always appreciated to get to get that word of mouth out there. Especially right now with social media <laughs> being in the the state that it is, it's especially hard to 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 get that word of mouth out. Yeah, we don't say it enough, but please, yes, rate and review. It's free. You don't have to give us anything, and it does help other people discover our little show. So thank you. Absolutely. Well, thanks again for listening. And if you've got any thoughts on Venba or Isle of Cats or just want to say hi, you can email us at omnigamersclub at gmail.com. Right. And until next time, have a balanced diet of board games and food. And video games. (laughs) There you go. All right. Thanks a lot. Thanks for listening, everyone. Bye. (laughs) Bye.